This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Good evening, and this is the Beyond Zero Emissions show. After a funny little interlude between this show and the previous show, where we needed to get the automatic um, recording off play, which was proving a little bit difficult. But tonight we have a, uh, if not scintillating, then an extremely interesting show on soot. Vivian introduced the scientist Jared Wedderburn Bishop and then Professor David Carrolly. Later, we will go to Sri Lanka with Dr Stephen Bygrave, the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, who went to Sri Lanka in uh, recently to talk about renewable energy. But with no further ado, let's go straight to the Jed- Gerard Wedderburn Bishop interview. Good evening, everybody. Soot is our subject tonight. Think of the little Victorian chimney sweeps covered in it. Think of the particulates coming out of diesel fueled trucks. Think of burning sugar cane. Think of black carbon. The book that got me into this is by Jonathan Mingle and it's called Fire and Ice. And the subtitle is Soot, Solidarity and Survival. It was all about a Himalayan community who could see their soot on the snow and they could see the glaciers retreating as they had less and less water for their crops. So I decided to ring up Gerard Wedderburn Bishop who I knew from his excellent work on the Beyond Zero Emissions Land Plan. And he had, I heard several talks by him about um, these, uh, the effect of black carbon. He has a recent paper published in the International Journal of Climate Change, and he's a climate activist first, I would say, and he works as a principal scientist with the Queensland Government. He says controlling black carbon or soot is a game changer in slowing down climate change. So how are you, Gerard? Yes, very good. Thanks, Vivian. How are you? I'm I'm very happy and really happy to be talking to you again. I remember your talks, and um, it, it it really was seemingly very fresh and new information. Though I suppose there's a whole community of people who know about this, but I hadn't really heard much about it before. Tell us about how you came to focus on soot or black carbon. Yeah, well, um, black carbon is one of those things that has, um, so to speak, uh, slipped through the cracks in the floorboards. <laughs> Um, it's, it's off the agenda in as, in as much as the IPCC and the UNFCCC have not included it in national emissions. So it's not something that we actually account for uh, globally. But um, recent work has shown it to be the second most important greenhouse emission, uh, second to CO2 only. So black carbon or soot has a 
enormous impact, but it's uh, it's little known and uh, little studied until the last 10 years or so. Right. Well, look, the media on television, for example, they love to illustrate the causes of climate change with steamy clouds coming out of power stations. That's always the stock image. But black carbon is something different from carbon dioxide. It's not a gas. So what pictures would illustrate it? Yeah, um, that's the problem. We we seem to be fixated on CO2. Um, And even when we talk about emissions, we talk about carbon and decarbonising. But that's all seemingly related to CO2. So the short-term emissions, of which uh, black carbon is, is a big one, um, I just largely ignored. I think to the community, the, the climate uh, science community has ignored them because, well, they see it's a hard enough job getting CO2 on the agenda, let alone all these other ones. Well, maybe it's a matter of time, but if you were a television producer, what image would you would you stick on that? So we're going to talk about black carbon tonight. What pictures would they stick up? Yeah, well... Uh, most of the black carbon that's emitted comes from open fires um, and uh, you know, pro- probably few people realise that. For example, in Australia, we burn 500,000 square kilometres of Australia every year mm. and we burn it for pasture maintenance in the north. Mm. Um, 500,000, that's about the area of Victoria. Mm. Now, there's enormous emissions from that, including back black carbon, uh, carbon monoxide, tropospheric ozone, and all the uh, particulates that go up with it. Um, but the, the, I think fire is the one that I'd like to put in people's minds because mm. Africa, of course, is fire capital of the world. Mm. South America is the fire capital. And now Indonesia, mm. with its uh, deforestation fires and its peat fires, is uh, it's actually Indonesia is just overtaken Brazil as the world's leader in deforestation. Mm. So uh, there's enormous amounts of fire. That, that's what I put. However, um, the, perhaps the, the emissions that are uh, the, the low-hanging fruit, so to speak, and this is what the UNEP and, and mm. the WMO have focused on, the, the emissions that, that are most easy to, to control would be uh, diesel exhausts, um, Shipping exhaust, for example, they use yeah. very dirty fuel. Oh, yes. Um, and things like, uh, uh, I think one thing I've concentrated on is brick kilns uh, because they use uh, biomass timber to yeah. fire up the brick kilns and that produces enormous amounts of smoke. So uh, they focused on brick kilns and diesel as the ones to best control. So <laughs> you, you, your picture for the, for, the, for the lay audience might be mm. fire first and then uh, diesel exhaust. Yeah. Well, look, climate campaigners have been ramping up against coal and I, can, I think we have to keep it simple. Lots of people say keep it simple, you know, so that you get these messages across because we can all remember when climate change was hardly, hardly an issue at all and then we all mastered CO2's the villain and we got onto that. But, so probably you have to take people along with you we're ramping up against coal at the moment, trying to block new coal mines like the Adani project in Queensland. But I don't think there's much campaigning around sooty black carbon. Is there more campaigning in other countries where the cooking fires are a problem? Well, um, actually not so much for the cooking fires, but the, the countries that are feeling it most are the northern North Asian countries, mm. the Arctic countries, mm. um, because, of course... Uh, the black carbon and brown
brown carbon land on the ice and snow and uh, they've been shown to be responsible for about a third of the Arctic warming. And of course those countries are getting very nervous because uh, as the Arctic's warming, the, the jet streams being dis disturbed and you get these things like snowmageddon in North America as well as the heat waves mm -hmm. that we've seen in uh, northern in Europe just mm -hmm. recently. Mm -hmm. So um, it, it, the Arctic is starting to destabilise and, and you know, one third of that is from um, black carbon. So they know the importance of this. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of initiatives up there at the moment looking at but We might touch on those mm. later. All right. Um, I, 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 the, the book I was reading was set in the Himalayas, and, that, and they, they really, I've seen graphs of that where the, you know, the normal weather pattern is really disturbed, it's really spiking, and I've heard about these boreal forest fires in Siberia and right across Canada, uncontrolled fires, bushfires that mm. hardly are reported even, but, but they're mm. extremely... It's, um, it's a really graphic thing to look at the uh, NASA um, uh, global view of uh, the, the air, air circulation or the pollution circulation. And, and for example, the Himalaya uh, are quite heavily impacted by Asia. So all of the China, Indonesia, Malaysia, all those forest fires and other industrial pollution and so on, it's, it's sucked uh, uh, west across the Indian Ocean and, and the Indian pollution as well. And it's then sucked north so it heads straight up into the Himalaya. Mm. Mm. And, and yeah, it wouldn't surprise me that, that a book like Fire and Ice would be written because it's really, it's really impacting the water cycles up there. They're getting floods and droughts uh, from it. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real worry. That's what surprised me. Well, I had a question, um, you know, at the moment we're in winter in Australia and especially down here in Melbourne, it's really lovely. Last night I went with some of the bees, Eddie, and went to a pub, you know, running in out of the cold rain and it was a lovely warm fire in the pub and I thought it's such a symbol of path. You know, it's ancient that we all gather around something burning and it's got yeah. a lovely feeling and um, yeah. yet it's totally connected to melting glaciers. Could you tell us how, you know, the, those small part, probably not the particles from that Melbourne little pub fire, but, you know, the, the melting glaciers are caused by soot on the surface of the snow, aren't they? Can you explain how that, that has yes. a climate impact? Um, yeah, well, how, how soot works is that, um, particularly from fires, it's, it's the heat of the fire pumps the soot up into the upper atmosphere and uh, upper troposphere and, 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 and lower stratosphere, in some cases if it's a very hot fire. But the uh, carbon particles absorb the sunshine and they re-emit that as, as heat energy. So it, in fact, warms the atmosphere, but uh, if the clouds or if the smoke is thick enough, it actually cools the surface. So you have this, this, this uh, thing called global dimming that was in the news a little while back is exactly that. Mm. It's, the, it's the pollution, uh, largely smog and smoke, that, that uh, clouds the... And, and, it, and it heats the atmosphere but cools the surface. Mm. And the, and the uh, black stuff on the snow stops the snow reflecting back to the Sorry, yeah, outer yeah that's atmosphere. the other part of it, yeah. yeah. Whenever, well, uh, soot is a, uh, well, it's an extremely powerful greenhouse emission. Um, it's been estimated to be 44 times, 44,000 times more, more potent than CO2. Mm. <laughs> 
44,000 times, that's yeah. correct. Um, but the thing is that it only, it only stays up there until it rains or mm. until it snows. Mm. Uh, then it's taken out of the atmosphere. But the, 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 part, the, the black soot and the brown soot, soot that lands on snow and ice actually keeps warming because it, it, you know, it, it takes in the sunshine and re-radiates it. Is this but, why you were hopeful that this was you know, a game changer to, to, to get these um, emissions stopped or you know, phase them out? try to change the habits that are causing these, would in fact have a short-term yes. gain for climate. Look, we can slow this warming growth down by half a degree at least by these moderate uh, things, including uh, getting rid of the, the, the dirty brick kilns mm-hmm. and, and diesel particle filters yeah. and wood stoves uh, that, that improve you know, cooking and uh, recovery of coal, seam, gas and... Uh, less leakage in pipeline distribution nets of, of fracking and all this mm. sort of thing. And, and looking at the short-term gases, they saw this, it, it, just moderate, moderate controls on those would actually slow it by half a degree. So this is very powerful. On the last weekend of November, we helped create the biggest climate march the world has ever seen at 5.30pm on Friday the 27th of November at the State Library. As climate talks kick off in Paris, we will gather in Australian cities and walk alongside millions of people in cities around the world. We will be demonstrating that our political leaders are out of step with the Australian community. We want a just transition to 100% clean energy and an end to fossil fuels. Join unionists and faith groups, youth and student groups and tens of thousands at 5.30pm on Friday the 27th of November at the State Library for Melbourne's biggest ever climate event, the People's Climate March. Check out more and RSV at peoplesclimate.org.au. And uh, Vivian's in conversation with Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, and we will return to that now. Stop it. Yeah. Is there any well, move worldwide to ban burning um, agricultural waste? Yeah. Um, actually, that's interesting. I, I did a, an article a little while back for the Climate Institute. What they found is that um, the, the black carbon and the brown carbon that's melting in the, the Arctic, actually most of that, almost uh, 95% of that, has come from agricultural fires. And a big proportion of that has come from uh, wheat stubble, what they do is they burn off the wheat crops stubble each year. What happened is when the USSR fell apart, they had really tight controls over uh, burning wheat stubble. They, they, they disallowed it, in fact. But, but uh, it's an old habit, and old habits die hard. Yeah. And since the USSR crumbled, the farmers have gone back to burning that wheat stubble, and a lot of that is ending up on the Arctic and, and melting it. Mm. But, yeah, in, in Australia, in, in the Southern Hemisphere particularly, you've got... Uh, Africa, which is the the, the, the the hot spot, if you like, in fire, that they they burn the hell out of Africa every year, and again and again and again, and it's and it's largely to kill off the old dead grass, which which goes nuts after the rainy season, yeah, and it's also to kill the ticks, yeah, um, and they they burn uh, Africa, they burn South America in different places. And they burn the north of Australia. That, that's what I'm saying. They burn a, an yeah. area that's the size of Victoria each year. 
Um, well, what's got to change? You know, how can these attitudes, attitudes that like slash and burn, they're traditional forms of agriculture, aren't they? That's traditional. Yeah. This is how we've always done it. How do you move well, away from is, that? This is not slash and burn. This is um, fires to maintain pasture. Oh, well, but uh, presumably that's to traditional too. In Australia it is, isn't it? Aboriginal people have done that for centuries. So. Oh, okay. Well, actually, no. No? Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, if, if you look at the... Um, the, the the BZE land use report, we, we looked into that and there's actually quite a lot of work now in Australia, Mooney and others, looking at the uh, charcoal record and they've gone back and they've look, looked at uh, sites around around Asia and around Australia, New Zealand and so on and what they found is from the Australian sites that uh, they went back 26,000 years and they found that even though, sorry, no, they went back a lot more than that. Mm. At, I think it was around 40,000 years they, they said it was the, the start of the impact of uh, the Indigenous people mm. and, they, and they saw no correlation between the charcoal record and that impact. And they, it was fairly constant until 200 years ago when the charcoal ramped up hugely. It just spiked through the roof. Mm. And that's coincident with European settlement. So... The impact of the uh, traditional uh, uh, indigenous burning mm. was nothing like what we do now. Mm. Nothing like what we do now. But they burn to kill off the old dead grass. Cattle don't like it. They knew, they, and it has a short-term fertilisation effect on the new green pick. Mm. And also they burn to stop reforestation. They call them woody weeds. Well, what's they, the alternative? They burn to stop it. What's the alternative to that? What's the alternative? Oh, well, um, we, we believe that um, rangelands are incredibly valuable for growing um, vegetation, for sucking down uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. And, and I personally see the highest and best use for a lot of our rangelands is, is reforestation mm. um, and, and, you know, get those perennial grasses going so we get the soil carbon building up again and sucking down the CO2 because really this is, these are critical times. This, this is desperate times mm. and people don't realise it yet but it's going to get really queer really quickly. Yeah. Uh, the, the, it's climate chaos is out mm. there and, it, and it's coming in a big way soon. Well, we won't talk about our present government's direct action. What would you see? Would you, if you were in charge, would you like to see farmers and landowners paid to manage the land in this way? Yes, exactly. Yeah, we need a price on carbon. We need to realise that, um, you know, all this talk of geoengineering is great because people are realising that, you know, desperate times need desperate measures. But the fact is that um, geoengineering uh, is risky or unknown mm. and therefore the precautionary principle should come in. Mm. The only large-scale... Um, uh, natural um, and, and simple thing to do is to grow more veg. You know, perennial grasses, shrubs and trees. Mm. If we can do that, to trees are soon going to be seen as so incredibly valuable for the climate and for the environment that, that we, we must maintain them. We, we, they, they can't be ignored. But I used to work for the Queensland government mapping the deforestation in Queensland. Over, over a 20-year period, we, we used satellite images to look at that. And 
and over that period they were clearing 410,000 hectares per year. That's more than 1,000 hectares per day. Mm. Um, 1,000 100 yeah. by 100 metre footy fields, you, yeah, you can imagine, yeah, per yeah. day. So um, that takes a lot of energy to clear clear that amount. Mm. They, they did cut that down under, under Queensland governments, but now it's bouncing back up again. The latest figure I heard was 275,000 hectares per day. So we're back to about 700 hectares Being sorry, cleared, per year. That's 700 hectares a day we're clearing again. So the tree planting exercises that are being done are nothing compared with the with the um, clearing that we're still doing. Oh. Uh, so so we've we've got to directly and the, and the BZE report addresses that directly. Mm. It says the first thing we need to do is to stop the land clearing or reduce it significantly. Mm. And if we do that, nature bounces back in those areas really quickly. Brigalow comes back crazy. It, it's it's amazing how much the forest can regrow. It it you see forests are really interesting things. Um, it takes a hell of a lot to kill a forest. And what they do is, and this is why you have the fires, because in, in tropical forests, for example, they clear. If, they, if you went in and clear-felled a tropical forest and then left it alone, it would be tropical forest again within a matter of 10, 20 years. Mm. But it, what they do is they can't, they can't leave it. They go in there and they burn and they plough and they dig and they burn and they burn and they burn. That's the only way to stop a forest regrowing. Mm. And, and they do that because of the land use that they want that land to be converted yeah. into. So but, um, forests are a lot tougher than we think. Yeah, well, look, I was talking to Gerard Wedderburn Bishop, and Gerard, I've just got one more question to you. Um, it seems to me that this, this doesn't sound like there's that many uh, campaigning groups behind this, and Beyond Zero Emissions is more a research group than really campaigning. We're trying to bring this information to the public, but... What sort of legislation do you think people should lobby for, at least in Australia and then worldwide, regarding yeah. keeping that vegetation in the ground, increasing yeah. the vegetation and stopping these? If you just focus on the soot being a climate change yeah, forcer, exactly. what yeah. legislation no, we, we, would you like to see? Well, we definitely need a price on carbon. We definitely need to be able to give money to the, to the people who can... Uh, regrow those trees and it's not a matter of just letting it go it is in some areas but we need deliberate measures to to uh, um, you know to get the forest back again to get the the perennial grasses uh, going again yeah. it's it's important trees are our saviour and we don't know that yet but, mm. but it's critical we need a price on that for people to take care of these trees and yeah. regrow them to suck down the CO2. Okay well look thank you very much listeners I hope you've taken it on board and if there are some cam campaigners out there this podcast will be something that you can use as a weapon to show people all this is the um, information we've been talking to uh, Gerard Wedderburn Bishop who's a, a researcher with BZE's land use plan and who has recently uh, got an article in the internet National Journal of Climate Change. Thank you very much, Gerard. Thank you, Vivian. And next up, we have Professor David Carolee speaking on black carbon. In my search to find out about soot, I asked Professor David Carolee. He is with the European Union Centre on Shared Complex Challenges. Well, that's what climate change is, isn't it? He's the research director there for climate and energy. Black carbon is essentially associated with the particulates that's produced from low temperature burning of fossil fuels. Um, it's essentially just soot. 
but gets into the atmosphere, causes all sorts of health problems, but it also causes warming of the atmosphere because black material absorbs sunlight, warms the lower atmosphere. It has a relatively short lifetime. It gets washed out when it rains, so when the fires stop or when it's raining, this black carbon basically is washed out of the atmosphere, as happens with most air pollutants. So you're absolutely right. Black carbon is a major warming issue, but it's a relatively short-term warming issue, whereas carbon dioxide doesn't get washed out. Carbon dioxide has a long-term effect in terms of increasing concentrations, and then it takes thousands of years for natural processes to remove the increasing concentration associated by emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. There's a big timescale difference, and that's why the focus is often on carbon dioxide, because of the long-term, the long time it takes for natural processes to remove that carbon dioxide introduced by human activity. Uh, the emphasis in Paris is primarily on long-lived greenhouse gases rather than on the air pollutants associated with things like soot and black carbon. Next I asked Associate Professor Malti Meinshausen. He's at Melbourne University in the Australian-German Climate and Energy College, where he is the director. I'd like to ask you about the climate impact of black carbon. The climate impact of black carbon is manifold. Um, for one year, black carbon um, is like other aerosols, changes the radiative properties of the clouds. Um, but you have the larger unique aspect of black carbon is that it absorbs solar radiation and it heats the layers of the atmosphere where then the black carbon is and it can then burn off clouds because it heats the upper layers. So therefore black carbon can be a large warming contribution other than other aerosols. Just because it's black, it absorbs solar radiation and then it emits that um, heat in layers. The other effect of black carbon is that um, black carbon can be, for example, deposited on snow and ice. And then it reduces the albedo. So uh, it reduces the amount of solar radiation that is thrown back to space. And therefore it has their warming effect. And as well, um, it causes there more solar radiation to be absorbed on the ground and is there heating. Now, um, those are very important and very strong warming effects of black carbon. However, different to CO2 and other greenhouse gases, black carbon is very short-lived. Like, if you avoid CO2, then you do a benefit to the climate for the centuries to come. If you avoid black carbon, then it's something that, yes, it's important, but it would affect the climate only over a very short period. Black carbon is normally out of the atmosphere again after days, weeks, and months. On ice, it stays around a bit uh, longer and it has their cumulative effect but normally the warming effect of black carbon is only something of days and weeks. So therefore, in order to prioritize um, climate mitigation, um, black carbon and CO2, uh, carbon dioxide avoidance, cannot be really compared. For the long-term climate change, the one thing that is important is that we get rid of our addiction of fossil fuels and avoid CO2 emissions. Black carbon in the long-term aspect is not so important, but yes, it's a short-term important measure. As well, it is an important measure to reduce because of um, just air pollution. That's right. Well, recent fires over from Indonesia have flooded right over into Singapore, Malaysia and uh, I imagine that, that that's a very bad health, health impact for those but what are the main um, levers to stop that you know changing practices I imagine land clearing would be the first one to stop what else? 
Uh, reducing deforestation is definitely um, the main uh, important measure there. Um, having cleaner combustion in trucks, um, for example, there's a range of measures. But black carbon is often uh, co-emitted with a lot of other aerosols. So um, that is another important aspect about the black carbon mitigation. If you change combustion processes um, so that you have less black carbon, then you as well reduce the amount of other aerosols. Those aerosols have a cooling effect. They're not. We don't want to have these other aerosols. They're as well bad for air pollution, but the overall warming effect that you then can reduce is diminished because at the same time as black carbon, you reduce other aerosols which would have a cooling effect and you don't have that anymore. So therefore, um, yeah, you always have to think in a large package of measures in order to address black carbon. You can't just, just address black carbon individually because there's lots of other stuff coming out of the pipes. Okay. Last question is, what part of the Paris Climate Conference will try to regulate black carbon? Um, At the moment, none. Out of the about 148 countries that put their post-2020 targets uh, together, there is one country, Mexico, who put in a um, pledge to reduce its black carbon emissions. And that is all good and fine, and it should be done, and it should be done for air pollution reasons, it should be done for other climate reasons, but the main task of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change is really to avoid long-term two degrees warming or higher levels and to avoid the dangerous uh, levels of warming. For that, black, reducing black carbon today is of very little importance and so rightfully so it is not a central negotiation point in the Paris negotiations. It is important but compared to CO2 emissions, methane emissions and nitrous oxide emissions uh, they are far more important in order to avoid dangerous climate change in the longer term. Thank you very much. And we're the first generation to feel the impact of climate change we're the last generation that can do something about it we only get one home we only get one planet there's no plan b still fighting for what is ours climate action climate justice no man know the time nor the hour in December, the governments of 190 countries arrive in Paris to discuss a new global agreement to stop dangerous climate change. Tricia joins their discussions with a series of special interviews and analysis, starting Monday, November 16 till 28, and continuing into December. From 8 a.m. till 8.30 a.m., weekdays and on Saturdays. The warnings have been issued. If we don't hold the line on emissions... Climate change will be irreversible. Sinking so low. Stay tuned as Tricia Breakfast Programs join the global conversation. Neuron 3CR, this is the Beyond Zero Emissions Show. That last interview was Vivian with Professor David Coralie, I believe his name is pronounced, and maintaining the theme on soot and black carbon. Here's Jonathan Mingle from um, our favourite Canadian community radio show, Radio EcoShock. Something is killing millions of people around the world, including in your city, but we don't want to know what it is. And the same something is the second largest global warming substance after carbon dioxide, and few people know that either. We'll investigate with Jonathan Mingle and his new book, Fire and Ice, Soot, Solidarity, and Survival on the Roof of the World. Jonathan, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. It's very good to be with you. 
We have a long way to travel to the Himalayas, so recently brought into the spotlight by the massive earthquake in Nepal. But let's start closer to home. Why did U.S. President Obama make his most recent climate announcement in a hospital? Well, you know, I think he was trying to highlight the fact that the pollution, much of the same pollution that drives climate change, is also implicated in in some serious health problems. And it's not something that's been on our radar screen until relatively recently in terms of public awareness, but a lot of, whether you're looking at smokestacks from industrial sources or tailpipes from vehicles, along with the carbon dioxide coming out of them, in many cases, you have other forms of pollution, particularly particulate pollution. And the one that I've been focused on in, in researching and in, in writing the book is black carbon. And black carbon is, is really just uh, what scientists call these ultrafine particles that are products of incomplete combustion. And the reason we're worried about those is it's those really small particles that can penetrate deep in the lungs and cause a lot of damage to human health. So I think President Obama has wisely started talking more about the immediate health impacts of being exposed to all kinds of pollution and the fact that, you know, climate change is not just this abstract problem that's happening to people far away or far in the future. The pollution that's driving it is also putting us at risk here and now. Yes, there was a study that happened in Brooklyn, and it's been followed up, that showed that pollution from cars and factories, all sources, can actually change the DNA of babies in the womb. And that was pretty scary. And yet, people don't seem to demand more action on this. Why do you think that is? Oh, I think, I think there are a lot of reasons for that. You know, if you look back at the history of clean air advocacy and legislation, you know, usually it's taken some kind of terrible precipitating event like the killer fog in London in the early 1950s that led to Britain's clean air legislation. Or if you go to China right now and you look at, you know, the air quality problems they're dealing with, finally people are starting to say, you know, look, it's it's hard for me to breathe. It's dangerous for my child to be you know, out and about in Beijing, got to do something about this. So it takes these these kinds of events, and, and it happened in New York City in the 60s as well, or, or look at L.A. in the 70s or Pittsburgh in the 1940s. You know, it reaches a point where it's so bad and so in your face and in your lungs that people get fed up. And I think we're, we're in a moment right now where people are, are, are sitting up and paying attention to that in a way that they weren't just a few years ago if you go to... For instance, New Delhi, where I interviewed uh, a lot of folks for the book, the air quality in in a lot of cities in India is is really the worst in the world, worse even than in China. But finally, people are saying this is a problem that demands immediate action. Yeah, it's strange. You discovered one root of this black carbon problem in a faraway mountain valley. Tell us about the location that stars in your new book, Fire and Ice. So uh, at the narrative heart of the book is the story of this village I've, I've spent a lot of time in the last several years. It's called Kumik, and Kumik is a village of about 45 households in a, a valley called Zanskar. And this is in a remote part of the northwest Himalaya in North India. And Kumik is on the receiving end of both the climate impacts of black carbon and uh, the health impacts of, of being exposed to soot pollution. They rely almost 
entirely on burning dung for heating their homes. And this is a place that gets very cold in the winter. It's 12,000 feet high. It's uh, not a lot of trees grow up there because it's in the rain shadow formed by the Himalaya. So they depend almost entirely on melting snow and ice for irrigating their crops. And they depend largely on solid fuels, so dung and, and a little bit of wood that they gather for cooking and heating. And so my first encounter in Kumik was in 2008. I was working in Zanskar on passive solar heating designs with some communities, and and I discovered that this was a, a whole village that was in the process of moving because they've been in a terrible drought for the last few decades, and it's just getting worse and worse. You know, it took a while to connect the dots of their of their slow-motion catastrophe to this larger global issue of black carbon, but it was pretty astonishing when I, when I started looking into it, just, just the scope of the damage caused by black carbon and, and juxtaposed with the fact of how little we, we seem to talk about it. You know, it's interesting. I talked to an atmospheric scientist who is from India, and he said, well, you know, even my auntie is cooking indoors with very little ventilation and creating this black carbon soot, but she thinks that the food tastes better that way. It's a traditional way to cook. It's going to be difficult to get the people of India to change away from that. That's exactly right, and people have been trying to do this for decades with relatively little success. You know, there was a government program in the 1980s and 90s in India that tried to bring what they called improved cook stoves to people across the country, especially in rural villages. And it largely failed because, you know, they took an engineering approach to a, a wicked, complex problem that has a lot of cultural factors and you know, you need to understand how does that woman in the rural village in Uttar Pradesh spend her day and what kind of fuel is she gathering and what kind of foods is she cooking and, you know, what are her preferences for the design of a stove. And and that may vary from Uttar Pradesh just next door to in Bihar, uh, the neighboring state. And you really need tailored solutions if you're going to help people embrace cleaner options for cooking. So that's to say either biomass cook stoves that burn wood or animal dung much more cleanly or alternatives like gas or electric cooking, biogas, and they have to be affordable. So it is a challenging problem, but finally, I think there's there's some cause for hope on that front because more companies are trying to figure out how to how to solve it, and there are these enabling mechanisms like the Global Alliance for Clean Cook Stoves which is really taking a holistic approach. Well, before we cycle back to India and the Himalayas to see how one village responds, I'd first like to understand a bit more about how black carbon affects climate change. What did you find out about that? Yeah, black carbon, you know, it's it's really the scientist's term of art for the stuff in soot that makes soot dark. And and so if you're a climate scientist, the reason you care about black carbon is in its name. It's It's dark. And just think of any dark rock sitting out in the sun. After a while, it's you, you come back and touch it, it's going to be warm to the touch. And, you know, that is the main mechanism by which black carbon adds energy to the atmosphere. It, it absorbs light across the different wavelengths, and it turns it into heat. It, it re-radiates it as heat. And then a second mechanism is if that black carbon, and again, think of a microscopic little dark rock that gets deposited on snow and ice, so a glacier in the northwest Himalaya, for example, it is going to reduce the amount of light that that snow reflects back to space. 
And so then that triggers these feedback loops, and it adds energy to that snow and ice, and it accelerates melting. And then there's a third way that black carbon influences climate, and that's through interactions with clouds. And that's where it's a lot more complex, and, you know, scientists are trying to figure out, well, does it reduce the amount of cloud formation, or does it increase it, and clouds reflect light to space. So if you if you sum up those three mechanisms, and they found that when you add it all up, it is definitely net warming, and in fact, it's the second biggest contributor to climate change, as you mentioned in your intro, after carbon dioxide. Well, you've alluded to something that confuses me and I think confuses some listeners. It seems like air pollution can play both sides of the game. On one hand, it can add another heat-trapping blanket near the surface, but other types of air pollution deflect sunlight back into space, helping cool things. How can we sort out the different ways that this is acting? Yeah, and it's it's really important to keep in mind that black carbon is rarely emitted by itself. So usually you think of, you know, think of a campfire that you might be sitting around and when it's really hot and, and the flame is leaping, you know, maybe you've got some darker smoke coming out of it. That means there's more black carbon. Flaming combustion produces black carbon. But, you know, maybe then the fire cools down a bit or starts to rain and, and you get more uh, lighter colored smoke. So out of, out of a wood fire, for instance, you've also got things like organic carbon and sulfates coming out of that smoke, and those are lighter colored particles, and they reflect light when they're up in the atmosphere. So it's not always the case that if you cleaned up that fire, you're going to get a huge benefit in terms of reduced warming. It's true if a lot of those particulates are, in fact, black carbon. So an example would be diesel exhaust or smoke coming out of kerosene lamps, which are used widely in the developing world for lighting because people don't have access to good alternatives. That smoke is almost, kerosene smoke, almost 99% black carbon. But if you look at a wildfire or if you go to Punjab where a farmer is burning his rice straw after the harvest to get rid of it, then maybe that smoke has a lot of other stuff in it that might not be directly warming. But at the end of the day, when you talk to the folks who really study this very closely, there's a consensus emerging that even from those fires, biofuel fires, the net signal is warming. It's, it's, when you sum up all the stuff coming out of those fires, it's, it's contributing warming. Now, some people talk about what could happen if we stop burning fossil fuels today. That's usually the phrase used. But if hundreds of millions of people depend on old-style carbon sources for cooking food, even if industrial civilization collapsed or had a big economic crash, this form of pollution would keep on coming. Well, you know, when you think about the fact, and I'm kind of astonished anew every time I think about it or recite it, that almost 3 billion people around the world still use solid fuels to cook their meals or heat their homes, so dung, wood, coal, and they're burning it in very crude ways. Why are they doing that? You know, I, if you go into a kitchen in Kumik, you know, I've asked lots of people there if they think the smoke's bad for them. They say, well, yeah, of course it is. But what are we to do? You know, what's our alternative? So the reason people do it is because they don't have access to cleaner alternatives. It costs nothing to go out, out the door and go gather some dung, some dried dung that you can burn in your stove. So if you're going to try to help that person clean up their kitchen by burning in a cleaner way, it's got to compete with that, <laughs> that zero-cost 
option. You know, there's a time cost and an energy cost and labor, but you go to the woman in rural Uttar Pradesh and she's a very sophisticated customer if, if you're trying to sell her a, a better stove. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And I think finally we have some stoves that they're not perfect, but they offer promise for that cook who can't spend a lot of her modest income on other fuels, but through smart design and user-centered design, you know, there are stoves now that can burn dung or can burn wood and approach the cleanliness of burning with gas, you know, that blue flame that we're, we're familiar with here in the U.S. if you cook with gas. We've known for a long time how to improve combustion. If you add air, you burn the fire hotter, you mix air with the fuel more effectively, you're going to produce less black carbon. So that's what we need more of. We need we need more experiments and more kind of smart design for this user who's been neglected for a long time, her needs. People out there in the radio world, show some love to 3CR. You know, and if you're listening and enjoying the programs here, yeah, man, great radio station. It is how, how it was built by community and the community ownership and that's a powerful thing to have within community so show some love show some support and please subscribe from the north to the south to the east to the west let the baller take you home island style represent your soul to the flow love your set represent raise your pride to the sky love it like it's the best my power bring it back home And that last piece was Jonathan Mingle talking to Alex Smith on Radio Echo Shock, again, continuing in the vein of the theme of soot, which has been brought to us by the intrepid Vivian Langford. Finally, we have Stephen Bygrave, the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, talking to Viv about his recent trip to Sri Lanka, uh, where it's been a somewhat or arguably gloomy show. Uh, as Jared Wedderburn Bishop said, climate chaos is coming upon us fast, desperate times ahead if, if we don't do something soon. This is a somewhat good news story to end on, um, talking about Sri Lanka and its potential for renewable energy. We're going to another country far from Australia, and tonight we've got Stephen Bygraves with us, who's the CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions. Stephen, tell me about your trip to Sri Lanka recently. Um, why did you go there? Thanks, Vivian. Um, I went there sponsored by a NGO based in Melbourne called journeys for climate justice and they're an ngo that's actually been working with an ngo in uh, in sri lanka itself on moving away from uh, coal and moving sri lanka to 100 renewable energy and so that group raised funding for me to go and i went to speak to government officials to non-government organizations and also to businesses in sri lanka about our research, about the BZD plans, particularly on stationary energy and the technical transition to 100% renewables. What sort of energy do they have at the moment? They have a lot of large hydro. So they have um, over 50, around 50, 60% of their energy electricity actually comes from large hydro. Um, and that obviously depends from year to year and the rainfall and, and the storage capacity and the like. Um, they also have a fair amount of biomass, uh, particularly for cooking and uh, for other uses, uh, particularly in villages, uh, rural villages. They also have some coal 
but also increasingly they're building wind. They had uh, they've got about a hundred megawatts of wind installed already out of about three thousand, but another um, three thousand, you know, another six six hundred or so planned mm. uh, for wind. They've also just finished a very very large solar PV project, which is one megawatt. Uh, so quite a large um, solar PV project for the, for a country of that size. Well, I travelled to Sri Lanka many years ago, maybe 30 years ago now, and it struck me as being quite a well-educated country. It's not suffering from underdevelopment like a lot of the neighbours, but they've been through a terrible war and they suffered the uh, tsunami damage. Do you think Sri Lanka is ready for a sort of high-tech 21st century energy revolution? Look, it's really interesting to speak to uh, government ministers over there as well as industry who uh, have actually worked on a plan for Sri Lanka being 100% renewable. So I met with the the planning minister who uh, used to be, before the last election, he was the power uh, minister for power and energy, and he was the minister responsible for developing Sri Lanka's 100% renewable energy plan, which has actually been agreed mm by the Sri Lankan cabinet. This is not some kind of Mm -hmm. um, pie-in-the-sky independent uh, study. This is actually a plan that's been agreed by cabinet, and that plan is for Sri Lanka to move to 100% renewable energy. Interestingly, this minister, Minister Ranawaka, um, is now the minister for responsible for developing a new smart city Mm. just uh, east of Colombo, uh, and this smart city will be based on renewable energy. It will have electric vehicles. It will have light rail. It will have energy-efficient buildings. And it will actually incorporate the full suite of, of uh, you know, ideas to, to move a city to be mm. based uh, on clean tech and 100% renewable energy. So very, 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 very exciting. Mm. Just tell me a bit more in general the kind of people you met and your impressions of Sri Lanka, the beautiful countryside and the temples and the lovely food and everything. What, just give me a bit of a traveller's picture for the listeners. Look, it was the first time I've been to Sri Lanka. I've been to India a, a few times, and uh, Sri Lanka was far less chaotic than India. The people are very, very beautiful um, in nature and spirit and um, strong Buddhist influence. Uh, 50% of the population is Buddhist. Um, and the food, uh, you know, an, an incredible biodiversity. It's, it's, it's actually a hot spot, uh, considered to be a hot spot in the world for biodiversity. Mm-hmm. Enormous variety of birds, animals, um, and uh, a, a very, you know, a, a community that's, um, I felt very supportive of each other. Um, a strong sense of family, community, um, and also a sense of independence. Um, you know, almost, you know, they're an island, con- you know, yeah. they're, they're, an, they're an island nation. And therefore, probably a strong, strong sense of independence and autonomy, which I think also leads into that mentality around supporting things like 100% renewables. Mm. Um, you know, there's talk about a grid uh, that would connect, sorry, a, a high, high voltage cable connecting India uh, to Sri Lanka. And the people I spoke to about that were actually saying, you know, a bit of reluctance almost mm. by, by importing energy, potentially dirty energy mm. from India and a, a very strong sense of wanting them to be energy independent. Mm. 
Well, I think there's been a lot of... Uh, they've had to do a lot of healing there in that community. But um, because of their civil war, and it's just been terrible for them, and I'm glad that you, you've had such a positive experience. But um, how threatened do they feel about climate change? How aware are they of climate change? Do they see... How would it impact, or will it be impacting on them? Yeah, look... A very strong uh, knowledge of climate change, particularly in the youth uh, that I met. One of the other reasons for my visit was there was a yathra, uh, which is the word for journey, Mm. um, with uh, a number of NGOs, including youth movements. And it was was an interfaith yathra as well. Mm. So it involved um, different people from different faiths uh, walking to different... Uh, religious centres in Colombo. And uh, the youth I spoke to on that Yathra were very knowledgeable about climate change, a real um, uh, foreboding, I guess, a bit of, um, you know, a lot of um, concern. And um, a lot of their energy actually also comes from highly polluting diesel Mm. and uh, oil-fired power generators, which Mm. are very, very old essentially put in place uh, when the hydro um, systems fell into decline and and could not provide all of the power or the growing power needs for the country. And um, a lot of local pollution involved with, with those oil, oil-fired oil power stations and a lot of also chemical plants causing local pollution. So generally there was a high... Um, education level about climate change and a, and a really strong sense of, of acting and Sri Lanka being part of of a um, you know strong push for mm. ambitious targets at the Paris conference mm. later this year. Okay, um, so just tell us again the name of the organisation that sent you and something about justice. Uh, where do you see climate justice with poorer countries like that? As we go towards the Paris conference, because I think a lot of them. I, I know I spoke to the. Um, climate change representative from East Timor and also in Laos and they're mostly going to be asking for compensation for the damage caused already by climate change. So where will the climate justice be for a country like Sri Lanka? Yeah, look, I'd just really, really like to thank uh, the organisation again, Journeys for Climate Justice, a Melbourne-based NGO. Uh, They raised the funding to send me to Sri Lanka and the, the, this trip was was potentially the first of a number where we'll be talking to other uh, developing countries in the Asia Pacific about um, the research that Beyond Zero has done and potentially sharing that research, but also using that research to build uh, more effective action. And really, this comes back to the climate justice um, uh, term and and, and uh, the terminology around justice, which is about um, on a number of levels. Um, empowering developing countries to be able to take action uh, on their own in the absence of effective international action. Mm. Secondly, um, treating them as as world citizens Mm. um, who should not be reliant on importing coal from developed countries like Australia. They, Mm. they, They can actually be independent in terms of energy and renewable energy and not having to rely on coal imports uh, from, you know, dirty coal imports from, from countries like Australia. And that's essentially in just um, where you've got countries spending a lot of their uh, income, you know, poor countries mm. spending a lot of their um, income on, on importing dirty fuels from other countries unnecessarily.